You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we're airing a best of show, highlighting some of our favorite food and beverage stories from 2022. But first we start with a fresh interview about one of our state's first mixologists, Harry Yee. He's best known for inventing the iconic cocktail, the Blue Hawaii, in the 1950s when he was bartending at the Hilton Hawaiian Village Resort. It was his creative mind that started the tiki cocktail craze, concocting drinks with names like Tropical Itch and Tapa Punch. He's also credited with being the first person to garnish a drink with a paper parasol. The conversations Russell Subiono was curious about Yee's influence on recent generations of bartenders. He sat down with Joey Gottesman, an Oahu native and former mixologist for Young's Market Hawaii, in order to talk about Yee's legacy and the holiday cocktails. As a lot of people know, Harry Yee is a creator of the renowned Blue Hawaii Cocktail. He recently passed away on December 7th at the age of 104. What can you tell me about him as a mixologist and the legacy that he's left behind? Well, he has impacted the market and, of course, the creative palettes of mixologists and bartenders around the world, especially in a modern setting. So when you're looking at just from where he started, the time that he was doing that in, he was right in the middle of kind of the battle between Don the Beachcomber and the other guy. What's his name? Was it Trader Vic? Thank you very much, Vic Bergeron. I'm really good at names, so you're going to have to help me through this. But as the Mai Tai was gaining popularity through its competition of who actually invented it, they were actually building the cocktail culture in Hawaii because Trader Vic and Don the Beachcomber both were doing a really good job of marketing tropical drinks, tropical inspired slash Caribbean drinks that were really, really exotic back then. So in 1957, it was bowls that created not only just orange curacao, which was already around, but they made a kind of innovative thing that was going to be fun and kitschy. And they said, great, We've got blue Curaçao now, which is a liqueur, a orange liqueur from the Curaçao Islands. So they contracted him to make a drink. And that's how kind of his career really started to take off. And just to kind of be clear, that was in 1957. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do, and this is just a side note, with Blue Hawaii, the movie, because that came out in 1961. So that precedes it by four years. But inspired by looking out onto the ocean from his bar at the Royal Hawaiian, which is kind of blocked now by there's a a big pool there uh, where his original bar was setting. He could hold this drink up and it would match exactly kind of the drop off and the ocean color of what it looked like then and there. So whenever I'm training people, I'm saying, okay, great. This is what you're looking for. But really what he did was he said, awesome, we are going to make this blue drink We're going to make it tasty. We're going to make it simple for not only himself to produce, but also in the years to come and looking forward. I'm not sure if he even had this thought that everybody would be coming on to making cool blue drinks. So back then, the kitschier the drink, the better the drink. So he's inspired all of that. In fact, in modern days, I did an event a couple years ago with mixologists from Europe and from the U.S., and one of the bartenders had purchased a bottle of blue curacao just so that he could put it in all of the drinks because he was so stoked to be in Hawaii. But blue curacao is a wonderful coloring and bringing myself from Hawaii to the mainland, I put blue drinks in on the mainland and the blue drink always number one seller or up in the top five for the product mix. So he was lucky and good enough to be asked by bowls a Dutch liquor company to make a drink with it. It became popular. He was in the right place at the right time. In addition to people coming to Hawaii to get tropical drinks, it was a fledgling kind of thing that was happening in Hawaii, especially started off by Don the Beachcomber and Trader Vic. But he fit right in and was right up there with those guys, if not better, because his drinks seemed to be simpler. And from what I hear, He took a lot of feedback from his guests that were enjoying the drink so that he could perfect them. So keeping that in mind, you're looking at things that are still used today, blue curacao, 
all the time. The second thing that he did that was really innovative was using the parasol in drinks as well. You put a parasol in a drink, you can automatically attribute that to Harry Yee, and his legacy will live on pretty much forever. And I heard a story or read a story that when Harry was bartending and he was trying to create this sense of locale for tourists back in the 50s, and whenever they asked him, you know, hey, make me something Hawaiian or give me a Hawaiian drink, there wasn't anything at the time. And so he kind of just invented them and made them on the spot. Absolutely. And if there's any bartenders out there and someone says, make me a drink, invent something, automatically you're kind of looking at the same position that he was in. Of course, that genre of drink has been solidified by, in my opinion, those three men mentioned, Harry Yee being a local Hawaiian person or living in Hawaii. He is from here. He is the one that started the the Hawaii movement for it and really excelled. And some of his other famous drinks that I've seen, Tropical Itch, Tapa Punch. Do you have a favorite? I'll tell you, you know, and I'm going to I'm going to put a little spin on it to some degree. When made well, the Blue Hawaii is my favorite drink. Absolutely. Then you also got to look at the Okole Hao, which would be a hot buttered rum variation. That's for this time of year, now that we're, this is the season right now. One or two of those, fantastic. But the Blue Hawaii, for being able to execute it at a high level and consistently, and for bartenders around the world, Blue Hawaii, number one, hands down. Then you're looking at things like Tapa Punch, the Hawaiian Eye, which I think they still are doing at the Hilton Hawaiian Village. Did you ever get the chance to meet Harry? Did you spend any time with him? I didn't, and my wife just asked me about that. I never had a chance to meet him, and I was actually surprised when I got the call from you. I, I kind of looked up what was going on. He, was, he lived to be 104 years old. About 15 years ago, I was looking to do an article on him for Young's Market. People had asked me to reach out and try and find him, but he was not doing well then, so I was never able to actually get a hold of him. One of the things I'm going to regret, super bummed out about. When a mixologist is asked to make a drink or when they're creating a drink, is there a formula that you follow, or is it kind of like a movie or, or a song where you know you just kind of put something together and out of the blue it just resonates with people? Well, you need to be able to be in a place that's going to get, A, lots of people in, right? So that the word can get out. And now in these days, social media and all of those things. But at the end of the day, say, for example, for me, I was very lucky. My claim to fame is creating the smoke cocktail. So I happened to unveil the smoke cocktail at the world's best Mai Tai competition. And then that's where everything took off. Now, we're not talking about a drink. We're talking about a technique that is now worldwide. For cocktails, on the other hand, social media, word of mouth, and again, it's just a matter of getting guests to come in and get that drink on their palates so that they are able to then spread the word that there's a new fantastic drink that's out there. And at the end of the day, especially with these iconic tropical drinks, they need to be simple to execute and easy for other bartenders to understand so they can then make a great drink for their guests. So that's kind of what it takes. I was asked a couple years ago as a mixologist, especially being a mixologist for a large distributor in Hawaii, how are we able to, I was on a panel, how are we able to determine what the next big spirit or the next big drink is? And the honest answer is where is the budget from the companies that are going to be supporting this drink? And it's what is going to be simple enough for us to be able to put out there, put a spin on it, and then have other bartenders to create. So the answer is whatever we needed it to be at that time if we're using that criteria. You mentioned your, your drink or your technique of making smoke cocktails. Can you talk about that a little bit? What, how, does, how does that work? There are several different ways to smoke a drink. You can either smoke the outside of it. And when you're considering the fact that 75 to 80% of your taste is coming through your olfactory or your nose. The original way was to go ahead and inject smoke 
or capture smoke into a Boston shaker and glass assembly and then shake a drink, flash infuse the smoke into the cocktail and then either pour it out or strain it out. Then they came out with a smoking gun, which made that really easy. Now there's smoking boxes and smoking cloches, which is not injecting or shaking the drink with the smoke running through the liquid, but it's actually smoking the outside of the glass. And then, of course, there's adding smoked components or a smoked a liquor that has smoke in it. Two perfect examples would be uh, mezcal, which has that mesquite, or in Hawaii we call it kiabe wood flavor slash nose. And then Lafroig, which is using peat as that smoky element, then you're just going to add a little bit of that in it. So that would have been the original way to do it because the smoking part catching something on fire and creating a smoking point was never done before. I would hope that they would call it the Gottesman smoking method. You know, there's no, it's funny, people are like, I'm looking it up, it doesn't say anything about anything. Well, the answer is there's no way to trademark a technique like that. And it's just a matter of the people that knew, that know that I did it, Mm -hmm. and knew that I did it, they're the ones that are going to be carrying on that legacy for me. But when I go out, you know, I'm in Europe and they're doing a smoke cocktail or I, I go somewhere into a, a bar or a mixology bar and they're doing a smoke cocktail. It is absolutely one of those things that, that gives me a thrill and I'm super proud of it. We're in the holiday season. It's a time when people like to relax with a holiday cocktail. Do you have a favorite holiday cocktail that you think our listeners could easily put together at home? Absolutely. So there's a couple of them. One would be a hot toddy, and the other one would be a hot buttered rum. And, of course, when you're in Hawaii, it's still hot there. But, hey, it could get chilly. You never know. But to have one or two for the season is is always nice. And then I'm going to give you a, a cheater one, okay? Yeah. And that would simply be a nice aged rum with eggnog. Put a little nutmeg right over the top of that. And if you go one part rum to three parts eggnog, and then you can make it stronger or weaker, those are the simple drinks that you're able to execute. Perfect. I'm going to try that one on Christmas Day when the family's over. Yep. And the eggnog, you can warm up. Don't boil it, but you can warm it up. It's it's delicious. And then there's a bunch of hot buttered rum recipes out there, but I always like to use one pound of butter to one pint of vanilla bean ice cream and then you bring that to a boil with star anise cinnamon sticks and cloves and you've got yourself a great beginning of your hot buttered rum once it's all together you put it in the freezer let it freeze you take out what's called that buttered batter and it's one part of that to one part hot water and one part of rum bourbon or whatever it is that you want to put in there Thanks so much for your time, Joey. Really appreciate talking to you and can't wait to try some of those drinks that you described. It's my pleasure. Aloha, my friend. And God bless Harry Yee. The guy was awesome. That was mixologist Joey Gottesman talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about Harry Yee's legacy and holiday cocktails. Islander Sake Brewery has lots to be thankful for this holiday season. It opened just two days before the pandemic shutdown, and the last two years have been quite the challenge. It had originally planned to open on the Big Island, and when it couldn't find a suitable location, it opened in Kaka'ako instead. But this year, the company moved to Puako, and it has just set up shop at Mauna Beach Hotel. It's produced three batches of its sake. Vice President Tama Hirose says he's quite happy with the results. More mineral-rich water, he says, has produced a more aromatic beverage. He's optimistic about the company's future and grateful for community support through its rough start. In Japan, the traditionally, people drink the high-quality sake for New Year's Day. So uh, for us, sake brewer, it's very important to produce the high-quality sake 
for coming uh, new year, uh, which is 2023 year of rabbit. So we already printed the rabbit picture uh, in front of the bottle. So uh, because we just finished uh, producing sake, we have to let the sake settle for maybe one week or so. So uh, we're going to bottle the sake and we'd like to deliver to the retail or restaurant in Big Island. And also we'd like to ship back to the Honolulu to the deliver the customer who are supported our brewery in past two years, which is really hard time uh, during the COVID time. Uh, but they support it. So we wanted to show the sign of appreciation by giving them the high-quality sake from Big Island. I think I first bought your sake at the little sake shop there, I think off Cook Street? Yes, Nadine's uh, and Malcolm's uh, sake shop. Yeah, so where else can people uh, uh, buy your product? Right now, you can buy online through the Kakak Wine and also some of the items we can sell to you directly in our Island Sake homepage. And also if you go Waikiki within the Ritz Carlton Hotel, there is a Bean and Deluga Cafe. Uh, they carry our sake also. I was looking at that website and you also have a byproduct in the whole sake process that you also sell. When we make sake, we use uh, only four things, rice, yeast and koji fungus and water so after we squeeze sake out from the tank there is the fermented rice remain we call sake katsu or uh, some of the local folks here called sake no katsu uh, these sake katsu can be used for cooking you marinate with meat fish or even vegetable uh, you can make a very good vegetable pickles uh, so these are really uh, many restaurant chefs and also housewives, uh, they like to buy uh, because it's fresh. Uh, it's much, much better than uh, bringing over from Japan. So we are selling this sake katsu uh, along the uh, other bottles of sake. So yeah, this byproduct then is a value added uh gift that you can also or a product yeah, we we not really throwing away so everything sake and liquid and also the solid part sake katsu also can be used for cooking and i understand that you have a restaurant uh, in honolulu as well uh yes during the pandemic the liquor commission asked us to serve food uh, there was no bar operation permitted without so we have to serve food. So fortunately, the Japanese sushi chef came to us. Uh, he offered his help. So we started the uh, sushi and the sake pairing in Kakako. And so we moved that function to Chinatown. So 25 North King Street is the location. So we offer sushi, kaiseki, omakase course. Uh, for $120 per person. And so you can bring your own liquor. Uh, sake uh, doesn't have to be island sake or a beer or shochu. So you can enjoy the, your liquor with the, our sushi and the other Japanese dishes. But that's so interesting that then this was born out of the pandemic. You know, in order to survive, you had to provide food. And so this concept for a new business then is born. You know, when we finally started selling the sake, that was, uh, I think, March 16th of 2020, uh, just two days before the city's lockdown. We offered the curbside store. People packed in the condominium around the Kakako. Uh, they came over, and after they drink our sake, they brought back the empty bottle. Uh, they supported us 100%. They told us the time like that, they want to support the local company. Uh, we are very grateful uh, people supported our little, tiny sake brewery just opened before the pandemic. So 
we were so lucky, we supported. Now we moved to the Big Island. After we received the liquor license, we quickly start uh, fermenting the sake. Uh, sake making process usually takes three weeks. So during the you know sake making, the Mauna Loa uh, started erupting. We felt again, you know, the first time we opened the brewery in Honolulu, we had the COVID, and now we started brewing here. We have a volcano erupting. Uh, but fortunately, again, Mauna Loa quiet again. But it's interesting during the time of uh, lava flowing. And uh, sometimes we hear the earth glowing or shaking. Our microorganisms, they did very good job producing the high-quality sake. I think not many sake brewery producing the uh, sake during the lava is coming down from the volcano. So I think this part is really memorable for us. So, and I hope the customer or your listeners uh, enjoy our sake to make feel, you know, have feel how Hawaii nature can produce such a delicious sake. When we started here, uh, the location in Hapuna Beach, the location was former restaurant, not used for many years because so when we went into this restaurant location, we call up the Hawaiian priest to, ah. you know, do the ceremony. Yes, blessing. Uh, blessing ceremony mm-hmm. before we actually start. Good idea. Uh, Daniel Kaka, he blessed this location because he worked for Mauna Loa Resort also. So, so Daniel Kaka, he, you know, just you know, kept walking within the property, telling the spirit, you know, he has uh, two Japanese came over from Japan. They, they are just trying to start make sake you know, they don't like to make any other noise, but they sincerely uh, make sake here. And he told uh, a spirit around here. Mm-hmm. And since then, we had much, much good feeling. Akaka said, long time ago, uh, this location was owned by Parker Ranch. There was a paniolo or a cowboy from Japan. There were many Japanese cowboys. Uh, they are actually good, you know, the chasing the cows and so on. But during the nighttime, they made sake in Waimea. And so, long time ago, the Japanese cowboy at Parker Ranch, uh, they, made, they already made a sake here. And uh, so, we did not worry about making sake here because we are not fast. A uh, long time ago, our ancestor already uh, made sake here, and now we are restarting the process again here. So we are so grateful uh, after, you know, we had the Hawaiian blessing here. That was Tamahirose, vice president of Island Sake Brewery. It recently moved its production from Kaka'ako to the Big Island's west side and is settling in and looking forward to a new year. We'll be right back after a break. Support for HPR comes from UHA Health Insurance, committed to personalized service, working to provide Hawaii businesses with health plans that help support their employees' health and well-being. UHAHealth.com Today on The Daily, in response to Russia's increasingly brutal campaign against Ukraine, an estimated 1.5 million people, most of them women and children, have fled the country. We traveled alongside them as they made their escape. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. 
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Tuesday, January 17th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. With the conversation, I'm Catherine Cruz. 85% of the food consumed on our islands is imported. We are seeking to change that, but to eat local involves changing our palate and educating ourselves about the journey of our food. Ashley Watts is hoping to contribute to that change. She's the owner of the fishery, Local Ia. She calls herself a fishmonger, a term originating in the 13th century, meaning someone who sells fish for food. The conversation Stephanie Hahn got a chance to speak to Watts about fish and owning a business committed to sustainability and community building. We're standing outside of an amazing mural. This is an homage to the Yellow Submarine, am I correct? Yes, so we have a storage area outside and we painted the mural and then my friend also wanted to paint the door and so I decided to go with a submarine theme since it was outside of a, a mural painted with fish and we had the door painted gray and then I decided that we needed to paint it yellow like the yellow submarine from the Beatles song. The storefront to ES Seafood off of Wailai Avenue captures the spirit of the business. Friendly, approachable, and creative. Inside, past the chalkboard listing the fish and fish products, it's a community kitchen, a hub shared with a few local food businesses. Originally from Panama, Florida, Watts explained how she entered the seafood industry and her business philosophy. I have been a marine biologist basically my whole life. I've always been interested in the ocean and everything about the ocean. I came out to Hawaii as a longline fisheries observer with NOAA. Before that, I was a marine mammal observer in the Gulf of Mexico. I came out here to do the fisheries observing and I did that for about six years and then I have been running local EA for about six years. Moving from marine biology to the food business, so give me the connection, the story here. Okay, so I've always been really connected to my food. I grew up with family who grew their food. My grandpa gardened, we raised citrus, he raised cattle, we hunted and fished. We always knew what we were eating pretty much and so that's one reason why I like to connect people to not only the story of their seafood but to other food producers. So at Local EO we're, we're not only promoting that you know the story of your seafood but that you also support other local food producers as well. Where does Local EO, where do you get your fish? Local EO, we get our fish directly from the fishermen. Mind you, they bring it to us, we pick it up from them. We don't get it from the auction or any other retailer. We get it directly from the fishermen. That's in order for us to get fresher fish to the community's tables, as well as to provide the fishermen with a fair wage. So at the auction, they dictate the price, and at Local EO, we pay a fair wage consistent year-round to what the fishermen think is fair. You're a woman in this industry, so tell me a little bit about this. This is a bit unusual. Are there other fisherwomen like yourself involved? Yes, I am a woman in a man's industry, that is for sure. Um, it took me a while to gain the respect of the men, but I think the fact that I am loyal and I have maintained those relationships and that I'm fair to the guys, they really appreciate that. And there are a few other fisher women that I like to highlight and showcase as well. One of my friends, Jess, is the owner-operator of a local meat company called Forage, and she's a fisherwoman, and she learned how to fish with a lady named Tasha. And then we have a few other other fisherwomen that we get fish from. What's your background here from marine biology to food? I think this is so fascinating. So I learned how to cook from my grandma. I learned from a very young age just watching her cook how to prepare certain things, southern style 
because we are from the south so I learned a lot of my cooking from her and then also I love to learn from every person I come in contact with and I love food and so most all of my friends have some connection to food and I'm always learning different preparations and techniques from them. I'm lucky to call Chef Ed Kenny, one of my really good friends, and I learn a lot from him. I always have questions for him and ask him things. But we did always grow up using all of the animal and trying to use all of what we eat. And I think now these days we forget that, but we're going back to that here at Local IA because we take all of the fish parts and we make stock and we sell the stock and then we take the stock and we make soups out of the fish and the local vegetables and the stock. And then we also use all of our scraps to make pet treats, which are just, just the fish, nothing added. We just dehydrate that. So I just kind of learned along the way as I go. And then we also learned some preparations and techniques from the fishermen. That's kind of where I learned how to smoke the fish and dry the aku and all of those kind of things. Tell me a little bit about the people of Hawaii and how they do eat fish. We eat a lot of canned fish here too, and I didn't know if you wanted to comment about something like that. I think here in Hawaii, I really love that people appreciate fish, but I think a lot of times they're not so much tricked, but just kind of fooled in a way to think that some fish is local when it's not. And they take for granted that when they're eating fish, they just assume that it's local. And so I think the convenience factor plays a part in people eating canned fish and other kind of fish like that. So we're doing our best to develop different products that are easy to eat like those things. We do a smoked fish and then we do a burger. And then eventually we are looking into starting a canning operation in order to help with the the love for fish and just to have it throughout the year because canning is a way to sustainably get the supply when you have enough supply for the times that when you don't have a lot of fish coming in. Watts is a one-woman show, but she does get plenty of help. Among them, a backup band of interns, a customer who helps out because he believes in the mission, and a fishmonger's mate, which I surmise is a bit like a first mate. Hi, my name is Jake Franco, and I'm a fishmonger's mate here at Local IA. So far, it's been a great experience. I've been learning a lot about the local seafood industry and been working on my knife skills and been part of a really great community here in Kamuki. I'm doing a uh, natural resource management degree. So we're doing a lot of wildlife management and a lot of work in class with looking at fish stocks and things like that. So it's fun to see the parallels. While customers subscribe to Watt's fish service, she also supplies restaurants and has a presence at various farmers markets. She says she's dedicated to meeting needs of busy lives and helping to shift palates by introducing different kinds of fish to her clients. When does the fish come in and what kind of fish are you promoting? So we get fish pretty much every day of the week. We're only open for sales three days a week at the shop. And then we also have our CSA service and we deliver wholesale to a couple restaurants like FET in Chinatown, La Vie in Waikiki, as well as Mud Hen Water and Town Kaimuki Superette where our kitchen is. So we get fish every day of the week directly from the fishermen. And then we like to promote the ta'ape, which is an invasive species. And we also like to promote aku, which is a tuna that's just as high quality as ahi, but it's oftentimes looked over because it's a smaller fish and the fishermen haven't historically taken as good care of it anymore because ahi was so popularized. But we're really into promoting sashimi grade aku and we have several customers who grew up eating the aku way before ahi was popular and they're really appreciative that we have the aku and then we also like to promote eating the parts of the fish, so the bones and the kama and all of those things we like to offer as well. So tell me a little about some of the eating habits what you've noticed and people's shift if there's any about fishing over the years since you've been here you've been here 16 years right i have noticed that there has been a trend to eat more poke and more ahi we are trying to get people to realize that traditionally poke is made with any kind of fish basically means to chop is what poke means so you can chop up pretty much anything and make poke so the poke craze promoting ahi we're trying to get away from just because we don't want people to eat one fish all of the time anyway we want people to eat whatever's available that the ocean provides and so we're teaching people to chop up marlin and make poke or chop up aku or ahi or mahi mahi or ono any of the fish that they like to enjoy you can pretty much make poke out of and so we're trying to get people to do that 
we've been lucky to see an increase in people appreciating and eating more ta'ape as well. And ta'ape is the invasive snapper that we like to promote. We've gotten several chefs on board with promoting it as well. And people just had no idea that it was the same type of fish, the white flaky snapper, as other things they like to eat, like opakapaka and onaga and other things. They're all in the same family. It's just the ta'ape was introduced because all of those other fish were getting overfished. And the unfortunate thing is that they're colored yellow and not red, and so people don't tend to gravitate to eating them here. And so after we've explained to them and had other people show and share that the ta'ape is a good eating fish, we've had a lot of increase in people eating it. Yeah, it was really good. I grilled it. <laughs> yeah, so tell me a little bit about this invasive species fish. So how does fish get introduced and why? Fish come over either on purpose or not on purpose. The not on purpose is usually in a fish's hole or either an aquarium fish that gets released or something like that. If the fish is introduced on purpose like the ta'ape was, it was actually introduced by the state. And so they have a large quantity of fish that they release into the wild. And the thing about ta'ape is it doesn't have any natural predators because it was introduced here. And so it's one reason why they've been able to populate and grow as much as they have. And so we encourage the fishermen to keep all sizes of the ta'ape, even the really small ones. And so we're trying to come up with different products like a fish sauce and other things in order to be able to use even the really small ones that are kind of humbug to, to clean. But you can deep fry and eat the whole thing. It's really good too. Just to know what you're eating and where it comes from makes a really big difference no matter what you eat. And also just to try to support the local food producers as much as you can. I think those are two really important things that we try to promote here at Local IA. At the heart of Local IA is Watt's belief that the foundation of all business is community and doing right by the environment. She believes that drives loyalty and the spirit of her endeavor. My name is Abby. I've been living in Hawaii for almost 10 years, and I've been getting fresh fish from Ashley for almost five, I think. The part I like is that it's local fish. I get it every week, and I know that it's supporting local fishermen, and it's supporting the local food movement in Hawaii. So that is one thing that I like about it. And the quality is always great. And what kind of fish do you like to buy, Abigail? Always the ahi, and I like the uh, mahi. So she knows to save me mahi when she gets a good catch. Thanks, Abby. <laughs> Thanks. OK, so I want to buy some fish, too. Okay. Well, yeah, so, mahi, ahi, or aku? Oh, I'll have some aku. And you know what I really liked was your fish stock. That was great. Okay. Um, so I want some fish stock, and I'll take some fish gumbo. That would be good. I'll have a quart, okay. a fish gumbo. And then the aku, you want a pound? A yeah, pound? Okay. I'll have a pound. Anything else that you want to add, maybe to any aspiring women fishermen out there, some young women? I think just to do whatever you feel driven to do and and my mom always told me that I could do anything and so I kind of took that to heart and and I think that that's true about whatever you're doing as long as you're doing it for a good purpose and with a good mindset that you can do whatever you feel you need to do. That was Ashley Watts, fishmonger and owner of Local IA. She was talking with HPR Stephanie Hahn about building community through good business practices. We'll have links to the fishery on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. in Hawaii, you probably remember buying snacks at the local crack seed shop after school or on weekends as a kid. Or you've probably heard stories from your parents or grandparents about being faced with an endless wall of yiklong goodies and trying to choose between getting the lihingmui, the ika, or lemon drops. Just talking about it gets your salty, sweet, and sour taste buds going. 
Derek Ching is a third-generation entrepreneur who grew up working in his family's Yik Lung warehouse on Dillingham Avenue. Started by his great-grandfather in the 1900s, it closed in the late 1990s. But that nostalgia for the yellow-labeled crack seed and Ching's love for Li Mui prompted him to get back into the snack business. Here's a rebroadcast of an interview, the conversations Lillian Song did with the snack guru, they reminisced about the Yiklong dynasty and discussed his new candy line, Hawaii's Choice. Sometimes when we're happy, we reach for the fun with natural flavors of Yiklong. So, Derek, how old were you when that commercial jingle came out? Oh, God, that was like back in the 70s. We did so many different commercials back then. And, you know, back when we were doing them off the different TV stations in Hawaii, I mean, I was like in first grade like back in our Redeemer school, I remember. And then my parents used to yank out the classmates at the given time and then all of us you know, carpool down to the, the TV station and do stuff. That actually was a modified tune. I couldn't find the original. The original was, you know, sometimes when I'm happy, I stick out my tongue, put on flavor and yuck one. <laughs> That's what everyone's going to remember back in our generation. Back then, if you recall, remember crack seeds and all the different things, we had the smaller bags. And I remember... I mean, they were priced something like 25 cents or even less than that way back in the day. So Yik Lung no longer exists except for photo albums, memories. Yeah, we started way back when, and then they went through the generations. And then as time went on, you know, the family had, we all had different visions on where things were at. Things kind of just migrated away from where it was. So I ended up going off my own, moving out to Asia now in Singapore. But, you know, I always have those family ties and going back, and I always thought to myself at some point, I want to try to do something. And then actually inspiration kind of came with my kids and my daughter. You know, at some point I wanted to remember back what we had as a family, and I kind of started this project kind of for fun. <laughs> you know, all I have are just really the stories that I got growing up, as far as I can recollect. The company you know, started in the feed, and then eventually my grandfather, Fred, he had his wife, Gertrude, my grandparents had taken things over. He started from what I had called back on Vineyard Street. Now, again, I wasn't even around back in those days. And then they got the space on the corner of King and Dillingham. So they had the factory and plants over there. You know, grew the business. They had a whole bunch of trucks, a bunch of sales drivers. We had two factories there. Most of my childhood memories came from growing up at the plant over on Dillingham Boulevard. Give me some landmarks. What would we see there now? You know, it's funny. It's like I go back and forth to Hawaii periodically, right? So when I go down there, going towards Costco, and I still see all the buildings there and the warehouses back. It's multicolored. The buildings there, it's all leased out to, I guess, other folks because we sold the property back. I think it was somewhere around the mid-90s or something along those lines. And I'll show my kids as well to try by that. So that space, the Odiak Lung Factory, was your old stomping ground. That's what I remember growing up working. In fact, I've got good memories, too, because when we were kids, um, you know, folks and stuff, I'm talking really young, you know, like seven, eight, nine years old, they'd have me and my brother doing something in there, whether it was on the assembly line where we were helping them pack. So my brother and I, they hop up the assembly line and help bag and seal some of the plums and stuff like that. I remember that. Back warehouses where we used to have the chips. Aside from the seeds, when we used to bring in the seeds, we used to also have the equine potato chips, different varieties of flavors, and then eventually we had the taro chips that we bought in, and all that stuff was produced off the back warehouse. As a child, I'm sure, I mean, you're living this, not really thinking about, you know, the history of it or whatnot, but this is your family's business. You just talked about how you and your brother would be on the factory floor helping pack. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I mean, that, that's all we kind of knew. You know, all the employees, I remember, it was really great memories. Was, I mean, a lot of those guys have passed on. All of them are really great people to work with, just to know as we were kind of growing up. And just all in all, really great experience. I know we had somewhere upwards of 60-plus employees of different parts of, of business. We had, back then, you know, we didn't have cell phones. I do remember the old walkie-talkies. All the different trucks had the walkie-talkie drivers. And I'd be in the main office with my brother just going, hey, 10 4. Roger, <laughs> you know, grabbing the mic thing. That was a lot of fun. So, were you also science inclined? Did you like playing with uh, recipes? I, well, that, I mean, that's, I, I kind of did that inadvertently as I kind of grew up in there, being tinkering in the back. And then in the course of, I used to run calls and with various different flyers and stuff as well. And so that was kind of a learning curve and experience was, 
going into the business. You know, I went to Funnel and I graduated from Marquette University with um, degree in finance. And when I got out, that's where I thought my direction was going to go. And then my parents said, no, 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 you're, you're coming back into the business and, you know, you'd like it at least, you know, learning about what's going on over here. So that's when I, I started going, okay, and, and, you know, learning a little bit more about what was going on, how the operations work, and then, of course, tinkering with that and with different formulations of our products and stuff there. So that kind of gave me the foundation of it all. And then as I went out and met with various different distributors and at the same time coming up with new ideas that I bounce off of people, that's really where my learning career came into going, well, how can we make things better? What can we design differently? That was my background um, or my, my stomping ground of, of learning curve anyway. And so the Valing Antes line, what we had was we used to have a lot of visitors coming into our, into our office. And there was one of the vendors that actually handled things with tequilas. So I brought up the idea of shrink wrapping, leaking moist beads around tequila because it was becoming really popular in the restaurant. So I remember back in those days where there was Ryan's Park Place and Compadres, the bars used to have those big vats with leaking moist seeds soaking in there. And so I learned, hey, you know, a lot of these people, they, they would take the powder and rim the margarita glasses or they they have the seeds soaking in the tequila, which basically would take the bite out of the tequila. Subsequently, we came out with a type of sauce that we wanted to try to put to market. And so being that one of the distributors at the time, they had a specific tequila that they were running. I was trying to come up with some type of a brandy for like a Mexican flavor. So we came up with the Amalientes name. I came up with a separate kind of formulation to try to make a more healthier version of a leading white sauce, less sodium. We removed some of the ingredients like the aspartame, and we came up with a sucralose type of mixture for leading sauce that was actually fortified with vitamin C. And, you know, it was a really good product. We had it out in the stores for a while, but, you know, unfortunately at the time, volume just wasn't, you know, a lot of people liked it, but it just wasn't at a pace that, you know, made it worthwhile for me to continue it. So I, I kind of let that go. And in the midst of my travels into Asia, I had actually met with a couple of other folks that actually were in the candy business. Decided, well, hey, you know, maybe we could come up with like a candy type of idea to help promote the sauce. We try that. And so what we found was a way to actually take the leaking powder, which was being used for margarita mix, and then kind of compress those into tablets. We formulated the entire thing so it would be compliant for being brought into the United States. And and that was the start of, of Valiente's leaking candy back in the early 2000s. Also trying to go into more of, of a healthier version. So I was always trying to think in terms of what could be the next generation of leaking moist. So that was our, our little fetish of leaking, leaking moist, leaking sauce. What could we come up with from there? <laughs> you definitely have leaking on the brain. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it was just such a popular thing, just that explosion, especially during the 1980s. It's like leaking almost everything, right? You had leaking gummy beers, leaking mangoes. Um, when I was actually um, taking a visit a few years back, I was inside one of the warehouses and um, actually at the trade zone, and one of the guys there gave me the idea of people sprinkling leaking powder on lemon. They say, well, what became all the leaking lemon? That's actually... It was the start of our new product, the true leaking lemon peel. So leaking in different variations, in different versions. Early 2000s, you were doing the Valiente leaking sauce, which then also turned into a Valiente hard candy. The idea between the candies was to do something a little bit different. So what what we did, the initial product that we had was a Valiente's leaking can. What it was was taking variation of leaking powder and compressing it into kind of a tablet form, kind of like a sweet tart. I had actually moved out from Boyo to Singapore back in around 2008. So our kids are basically raised out over here in Singapore, but my daughter, um, it was, she was three by, by that time, and she was well, she grew up a little bit with the flavor of Hawaii, and she loves coming back to Hawaii every year, so when we go back, you know, I wanted to have something for her and both my kids, my son as well. She want, has kind of more of a marketing tangent. She wants to learn about the business, and she loves history and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, one of these days I just sat down and said, look, let's let's create something uh, and do something a little different. So I had the Valiente's Legion Plum brand out for a while. And right after COVID, unfortunately, my grandmother, Gertrude, had just passed away. Not from COVID. She passed away at 100 years old of natural causes, you know, around 2020. And so I thought, you know, we have one line out here. Let's give it a go and try out those different things. And, and at that time, I was going to have some fun with my daughter doing it. So we actually took the Valiant Days 
brand and decide, well, let's relabel it, make it something that's more Hawaii-ish. So that's when Hawaii's Choice, we brought that out. So I actually had that on the bottle as well. So we rebranded things from Valiente's into Hawaii's Choice. And we wanted to you know, have that flavor, something special for locals that they knew. And so that was the impetus with my daughter to actually try to create something, have some fun with them as they kind of develop. It's actually me developing it, but kind of showing them as we kind of go to the way. So this has really been a fun family project to play with and at the same time growing something that could be meaningful. That was a rebroadcast of an interview between the owner of Hawaii's Choice Candies, Derek Ching, and HPR's Lillian Song. Ching says he'd like to add a new generation of treats and entrepreneurs to his family's legacy. We'll share the links on where to find the treats on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman Pope, Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello, our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. You can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow. Pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.